Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 335th episode of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting in this eighth year across the world from our studios in Hollywood, California, and this is the place where technology meets entertainment. Now, for the past four weeks, I've been broadcasting from overseas, firstly in Sydney, Australia, and then from the Commonwealth Games site on Australia's Gold Coast, and last week from Mexico. And we managed to get some great business done on the trip, and uh, I'll update you on these developments over the next few weeks. You might recall that a few months ago, I interviewed Rachel Kane, who's the CEO of Trax Records out of Chicago. And uh, every Sunday night in Los Angeles, she has a dance party at the Ace Hotel in downtown LA. I went last night and uh, it is a high energy, great gig. So if you love dancing, this is the place to be. So house music dance party with Rachel Kane, and it's on the last Sunday of every month. Don't miss it. It's great. Now, I saw a great report last week that studied the question of where does fat go when you lose weight? Now, the answer to this will astound you, I reckon. Scientists conducted a study to find out where fat goes when you lose weight, and they asked health professionals for their theories as to how the fat disappears. Where the hell does it go? Of the doctors, dietitians, and personal trainers that they surveyed, over 99% of them were wrong. So what other business could 99% of your professionals be wrong? So most said that it gets converted into energy or muscle. Others said fat was converted just into muscle. And some believe it leaves the body through the colon. These are all... Wrong. With the rise of the wellness movement, countless people have focused on burning calories, getting lean, exercising, going, jogging. Too hard for me. And some through fad diets. But we hear about people who lose 60, 100, even 200 pounds of fat. What the hell happens to all that fat? Well, scientists Reuben Merman and Andrew Brown professor and head of biotechnology and biomolecular sciences at UNSW, explained the results of the research, and like the health professionals questioned, you might be surprised at what the scientists found. The most common misconception is that fat is converted to energy. Well, the problem with this theory is that it violates the law of conservation of matter, which all chemical reactions obey. Now, the law of conservation of matter, for those of you who don't know, which is probably nearly all of you, that states that the mass of an object never changes no matter how the particles rearrange themselves. Other respondents thought fat was converted into muscle, which is also impossible. The third theory was that it leaves the body through the colon, also incorrect. So where does it go? Fat is actually converted to carbon dioxide and water. You exhale, you exhale 
the carbon dioxide and the water mixes into your circulation until it's lost as urine or sweat. So if you lose 10 kilos of fat, 8.4 kilograms comes out through your lungs as carbon dioxide and the remaining 1.6 kilograms turns to water. In other words, nearly all the weight we lose is actually exhaled through the lungs. Every carbohydrate you digest and nearly all the fats are converted to carbon dioxide and water. The same goes for alcohol and protein. The only food that actually arrives at your colon undigested is dietary fibre. The rest is absorbed into the bloodstream and organs. After that, it's not going anywhere until you've vaporised it. So how about that? All the fat that you lose, well, nearly all the fat that you lose, is expelled through your lungs. I bet that surprised you. Now, do you get my 30-second read daily business newsletter? We now have about 1.73 million daily subscribers. It takes us 30 seconds every day to read. And uh, every day we tackle a different subject, from advances in medicine to new apps to new technology to subjects like the Hyperloop. We talk about autonomous cars. We talk about blockchain. It's absolutely free. The information is invaluable if you want to get ahead in your life. And if you don't get the newsletter, go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and enrol. Over the past few weeks, the media has been full of the news that Cambridge Analytica in the UK had illegally obtained the details of 50 million Facebook users, that's you and I, and sold the analysed information to the Trump campaign, who used that information to illegally influence voters in the 2008. 16 US election. Cambridge Analytica has ties with WikiLeaks and people involved with the Russian government. Now, this has caused major issues across the world with the British government, the European Union, and the US government, as well as the special counsel that's been appointed to investigate Russian meddling in the election. A whistleblower from Cambridge Analytica has come forward. And the CEO of the company's been forced to stand down. Now, this surveillance is a new business model pioneered by Google, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook, and it's called surveillance capitalism. Now, before you all get too bent out of shape about our information being used illegally in many ways, another one's to send you advertising that you don't want or need. You need to realise that it's your own fault. If you're stupid enough to put all your information out there on social media, then you should expect that that information will be used and, in many cases, misused. You know, when the NSA records and saves every cell phone conversation in the US... We all get bent out of shape about how big data's feeding big brother our most intimate details. But we happily let Alexa and Siri listen to every single conversation we have in our own homes. We've got no problem letting Siri look over our shoulder as we type our bank passwords into our iPhones. So whose fault is it? Over one billion people have a Gmail account. 
2.2 billion people are on Facebook, and that's 30% of the entire population of the world. And we're willing to share with these companies personal data that if asked about on a job application would be grounds for a lawsuit. Google, Amazon, Facebook and Apple, they know all of your intimate details. They package them up, your desires, your habits and your online activities and sell them. That's what they do. That's how they make a dollar. And it's all because we've given these companies unprecedented access to our lives in exchange for some convenience and some pretty good gadgetry. And you give them all this stuff for free. Now, Facebook's operating profit margins are 50%. So even after taking out income tax, their net profit is still 40%. And we're letting them have the stuff for free. Crazier still with Amazon and Apple, we actually pay them to collect our data. How bloody stupid's that? Our intimate details and personal data is worth $2.7 trillion in market value. The four companies who are collecting this data are in the top nine biggest American companies and they're three of the top four. The internet is really Google's internet. It's absolutely everything runs through Google search. So if you're trying to sell on the internet, you'd better meet the parameters of Google's algorithm or you just won't show up in search results. Now, nobody wants to see truth on social media. Everybody says they do, but they really don't. Or even a reasoned opinion. It's just one giant feedback loop designed to reinforce your own gut feelings, feed you back half-baked opinions and reinforce things that you already believe. And it's tailored to do that. Now, surveillance capitalism has emerged into a dominant industry in the last 10 years and we still don't understand its ramifications. But we do know that it can have an effect on something as fundamental to the United States and the UK and Australia and lots of other places as our elections. These companies, Google, Facebook, Apple and Amazon, are in the driver's seat for the economy and the stock market. Now, lawmakers worldwide are starting to wonder whether these companies really are monopolies. <laughs> you got four companies controlling the whole ball game and we're wondering whether they're monopolies. Remember, there was a time when Microsoft's business model seemed perfect and then the Department of Justice ordered that Microsoft had to be broken in two. So are the surveillance capitalism companies going to face the same fate? You can absolutely bet on it. Facebook CEO Zuckerberg has already had to make very public apologies, both personally and through full-page advertising in all the major daily newspapers on Sunday. Next is a very stringent tightening of the Facebook operating rules, likely followed by appearances by Zuckerberg before government bodies in the EU, the UK and the US, and then humongous fines by these regulatory bodies. 
So that should get them to change their policies. But the lesson to all of us should be not to bitch about it, not to complain that Big Brother's watching us. It should be to not put your fucking information out there on social media. If you put it out there and it's misused, you deserve it because you're an idiot. My guest today is Dan Shiny, a leadership advisor and trainer. He's an author, a speaker, and a mentor. He's the founder and president of Four Power Leadership, which is a company dedicated to leadership training for corporate and government clients. Dan posed a number of interesting questions to me in an email, so I thought I'd have him on to speak about this incredibly important subject of leadership. And I'll be back with Dan after this short break on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, being broadcast across the world this week from Hollywood in California, where technology meets entertainment. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to this Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. For over the last five and a half years, we've just signed on for a sixth year. We've given you the insights into the lives of over 320 of the world's most interesting business people. We've talked about what they do, the challenges they faced, and we've tried to work out what it is that makes them tick. You know, it's extremely difficult to make your mark in the world and achieve success. And the aim of this segment is to introduce you to people that are involved in interesting and different roles and to learn their keys to success. The other aim of this segment is to assist you to overcome the challenges that you go to face, seize the initiatives and become successful. Now, last week in one of my daily 30-second read business newsletters, which of course you all read, that was entitled no job is safe from robots. Now, in it, I suggested that we are looking in the very near future at 50% plus unemployment. And with the amazing acceleration of AI and machine learning, that percentage will rapidly increase. Research by McKinsey found that 95% of jobs 
95% of jobs will only be safe for the next two or three years. An estimated 16 million Americans will be seriously affected by self-driving trucks. And the outlook is nearly as bleak for the 8 million Americans working as salespeople or cashiers. You might remember that last year, Amazon opened an 1,800-square-foot grocery store in Seattle with no cashiers, no lines, and plans are well advanced for human soldiers to be replaced by robots and drones. Government bureaucrats could be endangered. A recent report suggests that 90% of government workers could be replaced by a machine. Doctors are in jeopardy as recent experiments found that a computer algorithm correctly diagnosed 90% of lung cancer cases, outperforming a human physician by 40%. And algorithms are already replacing lawyers. Now, that's a good thing. <laughs> Many children already receive their lessons from sophisticated AI that's adapted to the strengths and weaknesses of each individual child. So a lot of schools will disappear and children will get instruction on everything from a single source. Now, as a result of this newsletter, I got great, um, great response. Um, a hell of a lot of people agreeing with me, a hell of a lot of people expressing con you know, serious concern. Um, and quite a number of people saying it's absolute bullshit. So I can be open to any one, <laughs> any one of those three. Um, but I did receive an email from Don, Dan Shidey, and he's a leadership advisor and trainer. He's an author, a speaker, and a mentor. He's the founder and president of Four Power Leadership. He's a real community thought leader. And uh, Four Power Leadership is a company dedicated to leadership training for corporate and government clients. His job might be a bit shaky. <laughs> Dan posed a number of interesting questions, so I thought I'd have him on the show to speak about this incredibly important subject. Dan, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You're being heard right around the world. Now, robots... Thanks for having me on, Bob. It's a pleasure. Robot, thanks for the email. It was great. Robots AI and machine learning progress is frightening. It is, it's accelerating every day, and 50% plus unemployment is likely at some point. Now, when you look at the 45,000 robots that are operated by Amazon, that's 45,000 people at least that aren't getting employed. Um, there's a factory that I wrote about the other day that's just replaced 90% of its human workforce with automated machines. It got a 250% increase in productivity and an 80% drop in defects. Now, it's for an employer, it's almost impossible to resist those sorts of economies of scale and productivity increases. So if this happens, who will be the most vulnerable or Will it be across the board? Well, clearly, you know, I think that the uh, least skilled in the workforce are going to be the most vulnerable initially. I mean, we've already seen that in some of its simplest forms everywhere. Uh, and you being, you know, a business leader who keeps up with the, with the trends in automation, even McDonald's and Panera, you know, are, yep. are rolling out uh, kiosks, you know, and all of that is designed to replace human workers and um, and increase their productivity. Now, as you say, 
you know, it's almost impossible, I mean, to resist the return on investment, you know, for, for these things. And for years and years, employers have been looking at ways to, to reduce, uh, you know, their uh, dependence on human capital, as they like to call it these sure. days. But, uh, you know, the least skilled, uh, you know, are going to be the, the first to go. But, you know, as you say, with the pro- progress in AI and as time goes on, right, every job becomes vulnerable to some degree. Uh, you know, they'll either need less of you or, or not at all, depending on how sophisticated uh, and how rapidly it advances. Well, a lot of this is happening now. And um, in Silicon Valley, they're cutting a lot of people's hours from 40 hours to 30 hours and reducing wages, I might add, at the same time, so that they can maintain employment. So, you know, there, there already is a replacement going on. But because these people aren't necessarily being laid off, you don't notice it as much now Mm -hmm. when more than half the population is unemployed you know you look at crime statistics for example people that are unemployed commit more crime and i can understand that you've got to eat um we really will have the haves and the have-nots won't we what will that do socially there's going to be a tremendous stratification of society you know and i can't even imagine what uh uh, or what a 50% unemployment world would look like, because I believe, if I have the statistic correct, during the Great Depression, okay, we reached probably close to 20% un- unemployment, and you know you can see what dire circumstances we had back then. Yeah. So you know that was on the the edge of uh, tipping point of social unrest, etc. And and uh, and then the most vulnerable, you know, becoming uh, becoming destitute and barely being able to uh, to feed themselves. So what would 50% unemployment look like? I mean, that's unimaginable as far as the, the level of civil unrest that could possibly result uh, from that, uh, that kind of situation. The, what, what do you think the reaction will be from the general populace um, once robots are everywhere? Everywhere you go, you go to a toll booth, it's a bloody robot of some sort. You go to your local store, it's a robot of some sort. Well, what do you think the reaction will be? Well, the reaction be, wow, this is great, and we'll talk about um, universal basic income in a minute, but let's say that people have got enough money just to exist. What do you think the reaction from the population will be to robots being well, everywhere? You, know, you could possibly see uh, attacks, you know, on robots and, and sabotage and people, you know, uh, re- retaliating against robots. And, you know, the, the, the thing about humans is that we're adaptable just like any creature on Earth. You know, we re- react to a stimulus in our environment. So you can bet that uh, people are not going to sit still. And there's also going to be, you know, a push for new laws and, and, uh, and, and protectionism. It's going to be even interesting to see what, what labor unions do and how they react to this on, uh, on a grand scale. But, uh, you know, there's going to be retaliation. I mean, I could easily see people sabotaging robots, you know, uh, and running one down with your car, you know, just to, <laughs> to get them out of the way and, and reduce them. So, you know, the, there could be all kinds of new laws passed, too, uh, relative to that that go beyond simple property destruction, right? If they begin to uh, give robots, you know, a certain degree of rights like, like humans have today. So it's it's a you know in the world in the words of uh, Aldous uh, Huxley right it's a brave new world. It is a brave new world. Um, what do you anticipate that the authorities will do about this? I mean, the authorities are between a rock and a hard place, aren't they? Firstly, 
they've got the pressure from um, the business sector saying we want the robots, we're going to put them in, we're going to cut our costs, we haven't got, we don't have holiday pay and sick leave and health insurance and all that sort of stuff. So the savings are a hell of a lot more than just wages. Um, and on the other hand, you've got the population saying no, and the population vote and robots don't mm. so are you going to have a massive uprising by the population saying no we don't want robots then what the hell do the authorities do well there's a thing about authorities and they tend to side you know with the moneyed interests and the elites and people that control you know uh, sure. the economy in many ways so you can, you, you know, my bet would be that, uh, you know, they're going to do everything in their power to protect, you know, the right of the people that own the robots, you know, to continue owning them and deploying them as they see uh, fit. But you're right. You bring up a very interesting point, you know, so, uh, but, you know, with artificial intelligence, and that's why we even have to watch, you know, what's going to happen when you have a highly sophisticated robot, you know, that uh, walks, talks and acts like a human. And um, basically, will that robot have rights? Will they be given rights? You know, and uh, and that could change uh, the landscape uh, significantly. Uh, you know, we are redefining potentially what it means, you know, to have consciousness, you know, with this sure. with this topic. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we'll, we can argue whether or not even a machine, a sophisticated um, artificial intelligence uh, machine has consciousness. But there will be people that argue that it does. And it's going to be very—it's going to be a battle in the in the courts, in the in the legal arena, in the political arena. But you know, you can bet that uh, politicians tend to go with the ones who bankroll them, right? And so they're going to be under heavy pressure to protect the rights and extend the rights of robot ownership and deployment. I, I guess one of the good things <laughs> is that if you look at the intelligence of most of the population, um, artificial intelligence to me often sounds like one hell of a good thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on the surface, yes. But, uh, you know, we, we the devil's in the details here as we get deeper and deeper into this. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, to, to those uh, readers of yours, you know, who said that this was BS, you know, I got to tell you that the mind of mankind is extraordinary. If we've imagined it, you know, it's only a matter of time, typically, until it becomes a reality. And, uh, you know, the AI, you know, had a, a big start, I guess, back in the uh, 90s, and it was kind of ridiculed, didn't get very far. But now with the immense increase in processing power at computers that continues to progress each and every day, you know, it's it's truly getting traction and it's remarkable what's what's being accomplished. So um, I think this time it's for real. And I think that uh, we can very much expect, you know, the typical like a, a droid type robot like you might see in Star Wars or Star Trek or something like that. It's it's coming. It's it's interesting that. Um with artificial with machine learning in particular, um, you start off with a robot that's got a certain degree of um, knowledge and smarts, and one could argue even emotion. Um, and as machine learning continue progresses, it gets smarter. It gets more knowledge it gets more ability to be able to work out problems and some would argue that it can then 
become more emotional. So, and most, I think it could also be argued that people are not getting any smarter. So on one hand, you've got robots getting smarter and smarter and smarter. And on the other hand, um, you could say that there's been a real dumbing down of the community. That creates one hell of an issue. Well, you, you bring up a, an interesting point there. The the robots and the and all the AI, it's it's software in the end. And um, engineers could put in limits, right, on the software on what it can and can't do. So, for example, in the area of you know you you won't necessarily have a robot that gets out of control emotionally potentially. Right. Uh, you know, and it could have limits too. For example, like never harm a human. Right. right. And, and, and things like that. And people will say, well, those are safeguards. Well, as you know, there's these things called hackers out there. Right. And yep. what happens if a hacker got into a robot's code and decided to alter, you know, that code and remove those restrictions? So now the robot could do anything it wanted uh, pretty much and develop the sense of free will. And that's where, where the danger goes. I mean, even uh, Elon Musk, who's this great visionary, I mean, he's come out in the, in the press and so that yep. this could truly threaten the existence of mankind, artificial intelligence. And so it may not be an immediate threat, for example, of um, the designers building the robot and they're a direct threat to humans. It's what happens if they get hacked yep. uh, and if those controls are removed and then the robots uh, begin to run amok. That's a dangerous situation. And as we've seen recently, nothing is safe. Just no. ask the CIA. <laughs> yeah, but it is remarkable, and, and there's no question that, that robots could be hacked. Now, in your email to me, and this is something I didn't quite understand, uh, you said that enclaves of humans will develop where they prohibit automation of a certain degree. How do you see that working? I mean, you're going to have a, an area, maybe a suburb, where the council bans automation, so nobody puts any factories in there, nobody puts any um, um, supermarkets in there, nobody puts any pharmacies in there, no one, you know, um, you can only drive your own cars and you're the only person on the planet that is. How, how, how the hell can that work? Well, that... Uh was an extension of a point where, you know, if you have a disintegration of current social structures, what could happen is that, you know, with massive civil unrest, you could have enclaves of people develop where they just, you know, they, they just ban uh, automation. They don't allow it. And that could put them, you know, at direct odds, you know, with the state and the people that, you know, uh, are promoting it. Right? right. And, you know, with that could emerge, you know, basically separate economies, you know, and, and a total deterioration of what we see today as, uh, as society. So, you know, that's kind of what I meant by that, that, uh, you know, people are going to rebel from it. Uh, and as you say, too, with people having the right to vote, there could be, you know, not, maybe not necessarily a total breaking away, but pockets of the country where where the politicians say, no, robots are not allowed here. We're, you know, and as you say, you must drive your own car. You can't have, you know, uh, uh, automated supermarkets or so forth to provide, you know, that certain level of employment. So it could create, you know, in essence, two two separate economies if you continue to allow that to, to uh, exist and grow. They end up like the Amish. 
uh, <laughs> old, in, in, old Mississippi. <laughs> well, in a, in a way, you know, depending on uh, on how you know it, it it unfolds, yeah, there could be you know an us and them kind of uh, development in, in society. And uh, yeah, yeah that, that's really interesting. Um, one of the things that I hadn't thought about, I, I've written on this subject in the newsletter, as you know, probably several, well, several times now. Um, but you brought up an interesting point. You also said that alternative currencies could emerge to separate the enclaves from the official state that will side with the elites and their machines. So I think we'll have not as fast as we'll have unemployment, but I think we'll have probably cryptocurrencies of some sort um, for the general population. I mean, in in Africa, as you probably know, there's, there's very little money. It's all online money, sort of almost pretend money. Um, and cryptocurrencies are going to be similar. So, so you think, you know, there'll be areas that, continue with the greenback for example i don't know who's going to print them though well depending on how the uh you know the separations evolve assuming that that it happens and you know there would be several steps before that right Mm -hmm. you have to have you know obviously this deterioration and this uh you know factions being developed but certainly as people begin to separate themselves more and more from the official you know state they're going to have to still continue trade Somehow. So that's why I see, you know, the potential for it to deteriorate further. I mean, you have today, you know, uh, Bitcoin was was developed. So, you know, there could be other things like Bitcoin pop up where uh, people use that and also could be an increase in barter uh, type of arrangements where people barter constantly as opposed to uh, using a currency. But that would be just an extension that, you know, with, with every separation of communities comes, you know, the, uh, control over their own uh, financial and economic uh, system. So, you know, it stands to reason that, you know, uh, these enclaves that might pop up within countries develop these own, their own currencies in their own way of trading because they want to maintain separation from the, from the central state, which will monitor everything. It's going to make it interesting because I I think that um, I think there's a rough chance that um, Bitcoin will survive and become a, a principal currency. I mean, it's growing at unbelievable rate at the moment, um, or at least some derivation of it will be our currency. Um, so if if you've got Bitcoin as a currency and you've got people bartering. Where the hell does the government get its money from? Right, and that and that is another problem <laughs> that it gets is created. A big this, you see, so there, there there are so many ramifications of this if it's allowed to run unchecked. Um, now, you know, to those who say it's 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 BS, it's possible that you know we may intervene in some fashion. There may be some solution developed because, as I mentioned, you know, humans are adaptable. When we start to see this. You know, taking society downhill fast, uh, you know, there's going to be people that interject and try to do different things. So we'll see. We don't know what those solutions are. But it's interviews like this and, and, and getting this topic out in the public that will hopefully create that dialogue and start people thinking about, you know, do we really want to do this? What exactly are we going to achieve by this full scale automation of, of, uh, of our lives? Right. Where, where is it going? So uh, hopefully we have those solutions that uh, that begin to, to pop up and, and formulate in some way that it's fair. 
But, you know, as, as part of my leadership uh, studies and the things that I tell people is that, you know, human nature is what it is. It's been the same. Our DNA has effectively not really altered much over the, the millennia here. Absolutely. So, yeah, humans are, are, are the same. So we're going to adapt. And because of those adaptations and our behavioral patterns, we see patterns in history, okay, of where these things have happened before. Now, I want to take you to a point in American history, you know, where we had slavery. Right. And slavery had some very interesting uh, parallels to the, to this. Now, slavery, as we know, was in, in a moral and heinous state, you know, for, for the enslaved, obviously. Right. But President Lincoln at the time made an observation that slavery not only harmed the person that was enslaved and deprived them of their freedom and their ability to earn their livelihood, but it also had an impact on the poor people of society who were deprived an economic entry point into society. Because if you could force a slave to do a, a job for nothing, right. Right, why did you need a, a blacksmith, for example, if you could enslave somebody and force them to be a blacksmith? So the parallel here is the same with robots, right? The robots could become the new the new slaves, in effect, you know, that then begin to progressively deprive people of economic entry points throughout the economy. You know, if we have self-driving cars, what's going to happen to all of the uh, immigrant people who, who uh, become taxi drivers, for example? My father, of which was one, he was an immigrant and he, he owned a taxi business in New York. And that's how I was raised as a child. He earned a living with his, uh, with his business. If that entry point goes away, for example, and, and millions more like it, I don't know what we're going to do, Bob. I don't know how we absorb uh, people and how we lift them up in the economy, you know, if uh, this uh, situation is allowed to run them up. I think that leads us to a really interesting point because universal basic income, for any of you listening that have not heard the term universal basic income before, it's a system that's being experimented with at the moment in the United States, in India, in Canada, and Finland, and the UK, and a number of other places, where all citizens of a country receive an unconditional amount of money. So um, the number that they're talking about, obviously, it, it varies from country to country depending on their um, standard of living and, and their general income. But in America, they've been the, the pilot studies here have been focusing on uh, two thousand dollars a month. So every citizen would get two thousand dollars a month. Now, because there's almost no work around, um, if you can go out and earn money on top of that income, on top of that two thousand dollars, that's great. But if you can't, you've got two thousand bucks a month to be able to live and buy your food and do all that. Now, I can imagine that to some portion of the community, they'd say, hey, how cool is this? Um, I know in Australia where people who don't work get, I don't know, three or $400 a week um, in benefits from the government, they're quite happy not to work. They're quite happy mm -hmm. to spend their life at the beach or on the golf course or whatever. So there'll be a percentage of the population that says, hey, how good is this? I'm not going to work. Um, but will that will that appease more people than not or vice versa? I mean, people are inherently lazy. Well, most people are inherently lazy, aren't they? We, we are, but I think that our personal growth and our sense of, of, of worth has is highly connected to contribution to society. 
and you know being being part of a society that's building and you're contributing to it you know i i think it's going to deteriorate the spirit of humanity frankly you know and i you know derive satisfaction from my work you know if i build something or i accomplish a project or i help a client that creates that sense of satisfaction i don't know what kind of you know human psyche will have in general you know as part of the general population when people just don't have to do that anymore you know are we going to become just hedonistic uh, people who just look to you know for the next pleasure that they can afford based on their government uh, subsistence uh, you know, strange, uh, you know, uh, existence for me. And that would be a highly strange existence. Wouldn't it be just as satisfying if you got up every day and went out and, and painted fences for um, elderly or helped um, people a- achieve things, help clean rivers and creeks? And wouldn't that be just as satisfying? You'd still be doing something for the community um, and you'd be improving everybody's lot. Don't you think that'd be equally satisfying? Um, to some, it, it certainly is. Um, but I think that the general general population probably wouldn't be doing that. I mean, if if that was if that would work today, right? If if that was a way to uh, basically engage the people that are receiving these, um, uh, you know, like welfare checks today, they'd be doing that now. And that's been tried, you know, before, and it's been met with massive resistance. Like, you know, the idea that, hey, if the government's paying you a check, well, you know, why don't you show up and, and go uh, and clean up a street or remove some graffiti from somewhere? And that's been shot down, you know, consistently. People just don't want to do that. They rebel against it. Uh, we have kind of a, you know, a... Um, um, a, a selfish survival mechanism, you know, that if I'm not getting something out of it, why should I do it? And once you give people something for nothing, they're going to just continue to accept something for nothing without having to go and, and return anything for it, right? And then then try to take it away, right? <laughs> you can never remove an entitlement, as they say in government, right? Because uh, it creates massive backlash. That's true. But if... if it- if everybody's out doing it, you might feel more inclined to do it. Um, well, some people might feel more inclined to do it. Now, a vast segment of society in this environment might not might not feel oppressed, but as you were saying, they'd probably feel repressed. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you you don't think that the um, UBI would work? I mean, so far so far apparently it's been quite successful in the six or eight countries where they're trialing it. Um, what it might do, if anything, is is uh, be a, um, a Band-Aid against civil unrest, right? Because I think uh, authorities would determine uh, just what level of income is necessary to keep people from committing crime, right? So if they had a certain amount of income, they might, you know, be able to um, to quell the civil civil unrest. So there's possibly a line where people say, "All right, if I give them just enough, they'll be quiet and behave themselves." So I mean, but you know, we're we're talking about a society here, Bob, that is dramatically different than anything we know today in the quote unquote free world. Uh, you know, to not be able to aspire to your dreams because there's nobody who can. Um, you can't produce, you know, your your uh, particular s- a service or your product because a robot's doing it. I mean, all of those ambitions are just removed from from society. And to me, 
you know, and we do have a vast number of people who have no ambition at all and, and, and are content to just exist and s- stand on a street corner and drink a beer, you know. Yeah. But the, the majority of society today is has an innate desire to contribute and create something. And when that is completely removed, that, that need for those people is completely removed, the results are going to be dramatically unpredictable. And I think it's going to be a, a heavily corrupting influence on humanity. That is not a bad place to finish this interview. And um, so... Dan, thank you very much for reading my daily newsletter. I really appreciate that. Um, You know, we're going out now to 1.7 million people a day across the world, which is a hell of a lot of people. I get a lot of emails, but yours yours was constructive and posed a lot of questions, and I really enjoyed it. So that's why I reached out to you. And uh, so thanks for emailing me, and thanks for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You You can learn more about Dan if you need leadership training or you need staff training um you can learn more about dan at four pat four the number four power for power.com and i'll be back with more of the bob pritchard radio show on voice america business network after this short break Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Network, and we're broadcasting today from Hollywood in California. Now, how often have you enthusiastically bitten into a big juicy burger or a hot dog with mustard and ketchup and pickles, or if you're in Australia, New Zealand and the UK, a meat pie covered in tomato sauce? And after really enjoying it, finding that you've got ketchup or tomato sauce all over the front of your clothes, running down your finger, it's a mess. Well, technology's come up with a solution to one of the planet's great problems. How do you make your burger, hot dog or pie drip free? 
Well, thanks to a Los Angeles-based food entrepreneur, Emily Williams, ketchup lovers will soon be able to savour their favourite condiments in slice form. The slice of sauce, it looks a bit like a cheese slice. You know, the thin single slices of cheese looks exactly like that except red. And the slice of sauce is going to revolutionise the way that we put sauce in our food. may sound a bit wacky, but it's got a good side. And a bad side. <laughs> this sliced ketchup is all natural with no preservatives. The inventors say the flavour's the real deal. But they don't say whether the slice will t still contain a heap of sugar and sodium, which is what normal sauce is full of, or what it is that actually enables you to slice it. Could have some interesting stuff in there because if you tip it out of a can or a bottle and try to slice it, eh, doesn't work. It's also shelf stable because these slices can last up to a year in your pantry. It also suggests that there's something in it. Now, the slice of sauce concept raises a lot of questions. When are we going to get slices of mustard? What about slices of pickle relish? Maybe I can just wrap a hot dog with a slice of ketchup so I don't have to eat the bread. But you're still going to need to have a bowl of ketchup. Otherwise, you won't be able to dunk your French fries. Now, we know what happened with individually sliced cheese. The good thing is it doesn't go mouldy, last in the fridge forever, well, almost ever. The bad thing is that it's about 10 times the price of block cheese. And we can probably expect the same to happen with ketchup. No more annoying drips, but you're likely to pay a price for it. Still, even sliced ketchup, I guess, is a damn sight cheaper than dry cleaning. Well, maybe it is. But I, for one, I'm ready for ketchup slice on my burger or my Aussie pie and on my bacon and egg roll. Sounds easy. You just unwrap the little packet, stick on a slice of ketchup and you're going. Coca-Cola is launching an alcoholic drink for the first time in its 125 year history and it's in a number of flavours which we'll discuss next week but it's an interesting concept as well. Now remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Now, if you're always trying to be normal, you'll never know how amazing you can be if you throw out that normality and get a bit weird. Now, I hope you have a fantastic Easter next weekend. Really enjoy your break. And I hope you can join me again next Tuesday when I again be broadcasting from my regular studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles. This is where technology meets entertainment. In the meanwhile, continue to be successful because the alternative to success really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.